Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for the week of December 21st, 2021. Uh, we're in the middle of the 12 days of Spawnmas. We're in the middle of the 12 days of the Comic Source. This is our usual DC Spotlight that we do every week. So if you're just joining us for the 12 days, just know that we do this every week. Talk about every DC comic that we've read, and we read almost all of them, uh, but there are spoilers. So just be aware. Uh, overall, I don't know. It was uh, there was a couple of really really good books, but there was a, a lot of Batman as usual. And I don't know. I just thought it was I thought it was okay. I thought there was two standouts. Everything else was kind of average. Uh, what do you think overall, Rocky? Uh, yeah. I uh, I thought there were. Uh, well, I'll I'll go three. Uh, I I enjoyed three, and there was a fourth one that I kind of enjoyed. Uh, the rest were disappointing and some stinkers there, and. Uh, yeah, I got some. Uh, you and I might have to do. I don't know. Maybe I'll I'll sneak some of my opinion out. But I I've got some. I'm starting to. I got some mixed feelings about the direction where DC is headed with some of its mythologies. Here, I got some concerns uh, with the way some of these titles are seem to be headed. But uh, you know, we'll get into it. All right. Yeah, let's get into it. And we're, luckily, we're starting with one that I is is one of my two favorites. Uh, mm. Supergirl Woman Tomorrow Number Six from Ooh. writer Tom King. Vilquis Evely's the artist. Mateus Lopez does the colors. Clayton Callow is on letters. Now, I had the advantage of talking to Tom King and talking about Supergirl and getting into a lot of the nitty gritty and what he's trying to do and what the series means to him. Now, you all haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. That episode comes out on Christmas Day because uh, I, I we just love Tom loves Christmas so much. I love Christmas. We always release our our holiday chat on Christmas Day, so look forward to that. Uh, but that being said. What I love about issue six and what he does here is in terms of the, the moving the narrative forward with what's actually going on with Ruthie and Supergirl going after uh, creme of the uh, Yellow Hills, it, it doesn't move that narrative forward that much, right? Like we know a few issues ago, Kara and Ruthie finally caught up to Krim and he used um, Mordru Ball, the magic that could, uh, Mordru Globe, I guess he calls it. That could basically transport them once it hits them anywhere in the, in the universe, and so it took them a while to get back, right, to track Krim back down. So in that time, Krim has created another of these Mordru balls or globes, but this time Supergirl is is prepared for him, and what she does is she hops onto Comet, the Super Horse, and she races across the galaxy trying to outrun this ball, gets to a place where magic doesn't work, and then she basically pops it like a soap bubble. Uh, and then because she knows where Krim is, and she has tran the transportation that Comet provides, she's able to go right back to where Krim is. And Ruthie's like, well, aren't you worried about another Mordru globe? And she's like, no, it takes a long time to make them. And being that she got gets back to him so fast, she doesn't have to worry that he's going to have another one ready. That's basically all the forward momentum in the story that we get. The majority of the issue is focused on sort of the trauma and what it is that makes Supergirl who she is, right? And this is a lot of what Tom and I talked about. Um, a lot of people haven't really addressed this sort of aspect of, of Kara. I mean, they've, they've dealt with her anger. You know, she was a Red Lantern at some point, and people are like, why are you doing that? Like, there's anybody who has a right to be angry. It's Supergirl, you know? Like, Clark, for and Kal-El, whatever you want to call him, for all his, you know, powers, he is an earthling, really. Like, Kryptonian 
genetically, but he's an Earth. He was born on Earth, especially if you take the John Byrne origin where it was a gestation matrix and he technically wasn't born until that matrix, you know, broke open on Earth. Kara's old enough to remember. She's old enough to miss it, you know? He, like the whole saying, you don't know what you got till it's gone. That's Clark. Like, he, he didn't have anything to miss, you know? He never hasn't, he doesn't have any memories of Krypton. With Kara, not only does she have memories of Krypton, she has memories of living on, in Argo City after it survived the destruction of Krypton and then watching her people die from kryptonite, uh, kryptonite poisoning and then solving that problem and then <laughs> having something else happen, having a storm destroy the lead shielding that she herself helped create that was preventing that. So it was just trauma after trauma after trauma. And this issue, more so than any issue of any series that I've ever read that has Supergirl in it, sort of breaks down that trauma and helps explain why she is who she is. And in my mind, the empathy that she has and the compassion that Supergirl has, despite the fact that she's gone through all this stuff, like it would make most people very bitter, you know? And it's why guys like Steve Orlando, guys like Tom King say, Kara's greatest asset is her compassion, is her empathy, that she's gone through all of this and she still, you know, puts others ahead of her, herself. And it also helps really give a lot of context to this particular story in that she certainly doesn't want Ruthie to go through the, the trauma. She wants Ruthie to have some justice. You know, uh, unfortunately, the, these catastrophes that Kara went through, there wasn't anybody to kind of bring to justice for, it. you know, they're natural disasters. Who, who do you blame, you know? Unless Damn. it's uh, Rogel Czar, <laughs> but uh, you know, maybe we should say he who shall not be named. Such a terrible, <laughs> terrible villain. Um, but yeah, I, I just love this. I thought it was such a great sort of character study in, in who Supergirl is. So, I mean, it's one of the gifts that Tom has. I really think that he he has the ability to break a character down or, or boil a character down to the, the essence of what makes them who they are, what makes them so, so special. So, I hope future writers of Supergirl look to this and keep this sort of in mind. You know, uh, it doesn't need to, you know, fully inform their stories, but it it's a it's a flavor that should be added in my mind. Don't forget, Supergirl's gone through all this trauma. So, uh, and and the art by Bill Cosevoli. What can I say? It's absolutely fantastic and detailed and wonderful. And the Mateus Lopez. I mean, look at that sun right there. It's just fantastic. Uh, Mateus Lopez colors as well. You know, give Mateus a lot of credit for those beautiful colors. So. Yeah, this this series for me is firing on all cylinders. This is my favorite issue of the series so far. Like this, yeah. this blew me away. I was not expecting, you know, to, to sort of take a little bit of an interlude in the pursuit of Krem to give us almost a Supergirl origin. You know, like doesn't break down like how she gets her powers because we know that we know that story. You know, we know she's Kryptonian, yellow sun. Yeah. It, it's you know, it's almost energy. a it's it's almost a Supergirl year zero. It's not even a year. It's a year zero. It's, yeah, yeah. It, it's it's excellent. Absolutely excellent. Yeah, I I, I fully agree. Uh, anything else to to say about it, Rocky? I I love this. Uh, I mean, uh, I think the narration is fantastic. Uh, as 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 it's so well scripted. You know, Krypton did not die in a day. The gods are not that kind. For uh, Krypton. Uh, Argo City, that portion of Krypton that exploded away from the planet, it took many years for Argo City to die. And it was an agonizing, slow and an agonizing death. And Kara witnessed it all. She witnessed her mother die. She witnessed 
there was originally 18,000 inhabitants that survived Argo City when it exploded. 15,000 died. There was, you know, uh, th- th- 13,000 of them died. There was 5,000 left. The, as you said, uh, she helped her father create a lead shielding on the planet because the, the land upon which Argo City was uh, consisted of turned to kryptonite. The people slowly died of radiation poisoning. They slowed that down because of lead shielding. But eventually that lead shielding was destroyed through a meteor shower and it died again. And Kara witnessed all that. And there's such a powerful moment the way this narrative is told and it, it, it deserves to be read because after all after all these uh, visceral descriptions of what Kara has endured, uh, you know, Tom King reminds the reader that she was 14 years old. She was 14. <laughs> and just think about that. Kara is officially more interesting, is the most interesting Kryptonian at DC Comics because of this story. Uh, you know, if, you know I mean, what really sucks is that, you know, after all of this trauma, she gets to Earth. Her husband is aged quicker than she has. And he sticks her in it. I mean, again, I'm going back to the, you know, golden age, silver age when she first showed up. Yeah. He goes, oh, you're here. Great. And it sticks her in an orphanage. <laughs> it's yeah. so horrible. Yeah. I mean, it's because no one's ever really t- t- taken a hard look at, at what Kara's life must have been like prior to coming to Earth. This possesses far more verisimilitude. And I'm going to go one step further. A lot of people will look at the story and say, oh, I look at Tom King, you know, creating more angst for a character. No, I would submit that what Tom King has done here is that he's actually taken a realistic look at Kara, what Kara must have gone through. And he's given her story more verisimilitude than any other writer has done, I would argue, ever in terms of her origin story. This is the best Supergirl origin story. And this really is her origin. Because throughout all this pain and suffering, at the end, when her father, uh, when her father uh, puts her in that rocket, kisses her on the cheek, and he says, you know, remind, reminds her of what her mother said, you know, be good. Despite all the horror and the suffering and, and everything that she's witnessed, witnessing essentially her planet die three times, the last message she heard was, be good. That's the message that her father gave her. And that's what she brought with her to Earth. And then when she gets to Earth, of course, she's she's very lucky that she's got Superman to build up on that. But yet, all that trauma, where did it go? She, she, it's, it's within her. And like, uh, and it's like, and even Ruthie makes the observation, you know, that, um, um, you know, when, when her, well, uh, let me just back up a little bit. When her father says, you know, she asks her father before she says, is there hope? And he says, there is always hope for you. And she says, why me? And he says, well, you're my little girl. And of course, I will save you. And of course, as a father, that tugs at my heartstrings. And, and it says, no matter what you endure, no matter what pain you endure in your life or how you look upon that pain at those in, and in those different moments, you will still be my little girl. And just a reminder that no matter how bad your life gets, remember that there's still somebody out there that loves you, that cherishes you, and remember that love because that's what's going to sustain you and get you through it. That's what Kara, that's the goodness of Kara. So the people who think that this is all about, you know, staining the character of Kara, this is the exact opposite of that. This is saying that Kara is such an amazing person. I would argue more amazing than 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 Clark because Clark, Clark was raised to be good, but he had the best parents in the universe, Jonathan and Martha Kent. And the other parents, Jor-El and Laura, he barely knew. 
But in this case, Kara was 14 years old and she was raised by phenomenal parents. And even her father, who was a little bit indifferent and maybe emotionally uh, 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 detached a little bit, uh, she had a great mother. But, you know, despite all that, she comes through with flying colors here and does an amazing job. And you really understand why she wants to go to task, why, why she wants to help Ruthie. And again, just just amazing. This is the best issue so far in my mind. There's so, so the, there's so much great. Uh, uh, the, the scripting here is fantastic. There's so much that I could quote, but I, I want people to read it to to really get to really get to the emotional core of this story, because um, this this drives home the central trauma that that underscores Kara's origins and. Uh, this is, this is, uh, I think, the definitive Supergirl story when this is done. I, I really do. I, I can't sing this praises enough. Yeah, typically that's how we feel after Tom finishes with it. Maybe not Adam Strange, but, you know, again, that was Black Label. But, uh, yeah, typically it ends up being the case, which is why I was so excited to hear that Tom was doing a, a Supergirl story. So, uh, all right, up next we have uh, Catwoman number 38. The writer is Rom V. Art and colors by Caspar Wingard, Tom Napolitano on letters. Uh, and when I say art by Caspar, it's art and colors. Now, um, I think last time when we did 37, we uh, mistakenly thought that that was Rom V's final issue. It was the last uh, issue of Future State. But this is actually his final issue, and it's sort of a, a wrap-up issue. What do you think of this, Rocky? Um, it, it, this was this was uh, this was a nice wrap-up. Yeah. Uh, this was, um, curiously enough, this is just, uh, I don't even think this was really necessary, but to the ex- I didn't think that uh, Batman Fear State Alpha was a necessary issue either, but this was better than Fear State Alpha in terms of wrapping up in the, in the pages of Catwoman. Uh, this has basically Selina approaching the police and she basically turns herself in, which seems, which is, it's, there's, there's, uh, Ram D does a good job here with misdirection. Selena Kyle does not, there's nothing about Selena Kyle, Catwoman, that would lead anyone to think she's going to approach the police and turn herself in. But that's essentially what she does here. But it's clear that the reason why she does that is she wants to find out what the police know about what she did, about her operation, about the, about how, what, what they know about Alleytown and about <coughs> her, her operations in Alleytown. And she does so uh, very cleverly by u- utilizing uh, Clayface and her own resources by imitating some of the police officers and imitating her own lawyer and creating some uh, some own deception within the police department. Uh, the police think that they're interrogating Selena, and in fact, I guess they are, but it's really Selena trying to figure out what they know as well. Meanwhile, it's through their conversation. It's a it's a it's a very convenient narrative device that allows Selena. Uh, to tell the police officers what what uh, how things wrapped up in Alleytown, and there's some there's some good revelations here. I, I, the ones that I think mean the most to me and that might mean the most uh, to readers is uh, the talks about uh, Detective Hadley, who uh, originated uh, in Villa Hermosa, who originated in Joelle Jones' Catwoman run. Uh, it showed his funeral, and at the funeral, Selena confronts uh, Father Valley. Is actually at. Uh, Detective Hadley's funeral. A little bit of disappointment here with Father Valley. Father Valley seems to be easily discarded. He shows up. Selena just has a conversation with him. Uh, Oddly enough, Father Valley, suddenly he feels like he made a mistake and he's going to leave to find his penance because he feels that 
This is the first time he feels that he's killed an innocent, and that was Detective Hadley. So I'm not really buying into this Father Valley trying to find penance BS or the fact that Selena didn't even try to stop him or confront him at the at the funeral. Or it just seemed a little bit off to me. I, I thought that was a little bit convenient. It just it, it seemed like a very forceful way to get a Father Valley off the playing field because I I love Father Valley as a villain. I just thought it didn't really it didn't really mesh well with me that he just seemed to show up at the funeral sort of pretending to be a priest, although in a, I guess in a sense he is, and then he just sort of walked off. So I had some issues with that, but, you know, we got some little bit of closure there anyway. So Father Valley leaves to fight another day, but he's likely not going to be a, a, a mainstay as a Catwoman villain because it never really made sense that he fixated on Selena all that much in the first place, in my mind. The other issues, uh, what it's revealed here that White Witch, the uh, the White White Witch and the Ghost Maker have some connection to each other in their past. We don't know what that is, but that's going to be revealed, I think, in future issues of Batman. Or uh, you know that Ghost Maker knows th that the true identity of White Witch is a is a woman by the name of Re. So that's going to be revealed probably in time. So that's teased. We also get, uh, in my view, perhaps the most significant, and that is, uh, Cheshire uh, Jade Nguyen. Uh, confronts uh, her daughter's shoes and inter introduces herself to the Cheshire cat. And it's not clear here if, uh, because it was, it was established in uh, DC's festival of heroes in a story called masks that you and I reviewed in that story called masks in Fe DC's festival of heroes. That's when we were introduced to, to shoes. And it was revealed that, that Jay, that Cheshire dropped off her young daughter, who she referred to as the Lotus in front of the church. And that daughter grew up to be, uh, we know to be Leon Harper, uh, Roy Harper and Cheshire's daughter. And she grows up to be the Cheshire cat, sort of the de facto sidekick to Catwoman. And here we have uh, Jade Nguyen, the Cheshire, introducing herself to her daughter. It's and. She doesn't know. I'm sure that Jade knows that it's her daughter, but it doesn't appear as if it doesn't appear as if I don't think that that Shoes knows that she's shaking the hands of her mother. It's interesting. We know that Roy Harper is at some point going to play play a, is going to find out where because Roy Harper and the the Titans in Teen Titans Academy, Donna Troy and 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 uh, Dick Grayson and all the gang said they told Roy Harper they were going to help him find their daughter. Well. She's in the pages of Catwoman. What's going to come of that? We don't know. I guess that'll be up to Teeny Howard, uh, the next writer on Catwoman, to see if she's going to be exploring that or if we're going to be looking to the pages of Teen Titans for the rest of it. Um, as for as for the rest of the story, everything was a nice, convenient wrap-up. Uh, you know, Selena escapes with the help of, of, of Clayface. And and there's a, there's a nice little send-off. Nice little send-off. And that that's really it. It's kind of a... That's in a, in a nutshell. The rest is all sort of like the usual stuff you get about, you know, this is my city, you know, I'll my independence, I'll be seeing you soon, et cetera, et cetera. This is Ram V saying thanks for showing up, thanks for all the support to the readers and and you know and some and some pretty decent art uh, by Casper um, uh, uh, Wingengard Wingengard while we're at it. So, what do you think? Yeah, I didn't like it as as much as you did. Um... First of all, I, I I don't I don't think the art by Casper is bad by by any stretch. Um, but what I don't what I didn't really care for was the coloring. So much pink in here that it didn't it didn't really do it for me. But yet, 
there's certain there's certain panels where he doesn't lean into that like where she's riding her motorcycle uh, where it's got a lot less pink and a little more sort of uh natural colors where i think the art works a lot better hmm. typically it's the sort of the either in the interrogation room or or the flashbacks where we get these like just pink or neon colored backgrounds which i, I didn't really care for um i agree with you the father valley thing all of a sudden felt very convenient oh he he killed detective uh hadley so hadley. now he's hallie yeah that, so now he's all of a sudden he he feels bad uh well you know i it doesn't it doesn't yeah it doesn't make sense this guy's never shown you know one ounce of of mercy but according to his code now he's made a mistake because he's killed an innocent by killing detective hadley so now he's gotta not go after catwoman i mean remember he was hired by the penguin to go after her so you're right in that it doesn't seem a natural sort of nemesis for her but then for whatever reason he did fixate on her and thinks that he, he needed to you know punish her for her sins so for them him to just absolve her of the sins felt it felt very forced um but really at the end of the day what this is this is the fact that rom v did not plan on leaving catwoman um when when he did so he had a lot more story to tell but unfortunately he had to leave because he had too many projects and something had to give and, and catwoman unfortunately wasn't it wasn't you know it was a mutual choice by him or, or maybe even maybe you don't say mutual it was his choice to leave because he told dc you know i just I've got too much I, and I, I just can't, you know, you only have so much bandwidth. So it's unfortunate, but I do appreciate the issue in terms of at least he, he tries to wrap everything up um, and not leave any loose ends, even if it does feel a little bit rushed. But the other thing that it does, it's super respectful to Tinny Howard to give her kind of a sling, clean slate to step into. So overall, I thought it, I thought it was okay. I, I, I guess I enjoyed the intent of the issue more than the actual execution but only because this is, you know, a bunch of plot lines that, that had a lot longer to go that are truncated and, you know, we get, we get endings, but they're not exactly satisfying endings. Um, but again, nobody, nobody's fault. That's just how it goes sometimes. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Batman Catwoman. This is from writer Tom King. Liam Sharp does the art and colors. Clayton Cowell on letters. Uh, again, it's a super complicated story. Uh, not to mention it again, but you know, my, in my chat with Tom King, he talked about it being one of the most complicated stories he's ever done because there's three distinct timelines. We've talked about it a ton. I'm not going to rehash it. This will read a lot better as a collected edition when you can remember all three timelines. You can read all three times. You could even read them separately if you want. Let me read this story, you know, from start to finish. Let me read this present story, start to finish. Let me read this future story, start to finish. It is set at Christmas time, so if you want to think of it as, you know, past, present, future, Christmas Carol, all that sort of stuff, it works really, really well. There's good, there's good stuff here, especially the art by Liam Sharp. But again, it just reading it in these, uh, you know, in these individual issues that come out every other month now, um, it, it just it's so hard to follow, so hard to remember. You know, you got to go two months. There's three different storylines. You got to go two months between reading them. It, it, I just, I can't remember. I'm like, wait, what's going on again? So uh, I think once it's all said and done, um, it'll be something to sit down and, and read in one sitting and it'll, it should work pretty well. So after this, I think there's 
three more issues left. Uh, this is a 12 issue mini and this is issue number nine. Yep. So uh, I will say that Jim Lee cover is fantastic though. Um, and yeah, like I said, the, the Liam Sharp art, he does a fantastic job. Um, and he does a, he does a good job too of the, the art between the past, present and future stories are, are all subtly different as well. So what do you think Rocky? Uh, I, I'm I'm still confused by it. Uh, like I said, I've this whole. Uh, while I wasn't a huge fan of Tom King on the Batman run, I've uh, I've I've been loving Tom King. You you and I have been singing his praises on Rorschach and uh, Adam's you know Strange Adventures and um, Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow. Uh, this Batcat, I've I've really struggled trying to get a handle on the narrative. I, I, like you, I hope that maybe at the end when I read it, maybe there's going to be a revelation at the end where I go, you're like, oh my God, of course. And then I can go back and reread it. Because I know Rorschach was kind of like that, where it's like, oh, so that's what it is. And so it kind of made me sort of reflect on things I thought were going on, but weren't. So maybe there's some misdirection there. I love the art. It's really fantastic. Um, I keep thinking that I'm missing something because this is actually is one of the, I understand this is one of the more higher sales of the Bat titles. And so... Apparently, a lot of people are really, really liking this. Uh, I, I don't quite understand. Uh, I don't understand the the narrative enough to really to 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 be able to 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 sing its praises other than artistically. But it's the oddest thing. The art on this issue in particular, I think, really stands out. It's really gorgeous. This issue. I love the penguin in this issue. There's some great scenes of the penguin between and an older Selena Kyle, or she breaks his nose, and and there's some really kind of disturbing pictures of the Joker seemingly strangling a woman. I'm not, I'm not quite understanding. I've, I've reread the previous issues. I'm still confused. Uh, and I've, uh, I stopped even trying to take notes because I, I don't know what's going on. I, I just don't. And I, I, I've, I can't keep track of the different uh, timelines. I'm not sure what's going on. I've, um, but Hey, uh, you know, we'll see. I'm really curious if uh, your interview with him, did you talk to him about this title? Did you already talk to him? Interview? Yeah. Yeah. We've mentioned this title. We, I didn't get into specifics, but yeah, yeah. He, ba he basically said that, yeah, it's, it's really complicated and it's hard to, you know, make it clear without giving things away. Um, and that, yeah, he, he agreed that he thinks it'll read a lot better when it's all collected. Um, yeah. And I would say that, so the future storyline to me is the easiest one to follow. The one in the present time in the past is the one that I still, I still get confused, but I haven't gone back and reread. Um, but the future one is easy because, you know, Selena's older and gray. And so it's easy to tell. Oh yeah. And that's one where she has a daughter and um, yeah, Dick Grayson is the commissioner. And yeah, so that, that one's really great. The other two. Yeah. I'm not, I I sort of so I understand what's going on in that timeline. The 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 past timeline with the phantasm, I sort of understand. The present one is the one where I I'm lost. Yeah. I'm like, wait, what's going on? So yeah, you you and Batman are having a disagreement because he thinks that you worked with the Joker in the past, which you know he knows you have. So yeah, but again, I think when it's all said and done, I'm gonna look forward to reading this. Um, you know. And collect well, it, and and yeah, what I what I'll probably do is be like, okay, I'm gonna read, I'm gonna read it three times, <laughs> technically. I'm gonna read the whole past storyline. I'm gonna skip everything else, 
Then I'm going to read the present day storyline, skip everything else. Then I'll read the future storyline, skip everything else. So I'm not jumping around between, you know, three different, uh, yeah. three different timelines. See if it makes more sense that way. Well, I will say that the the cover, this is my favorite cover out of all the issues so far. It's the cover that's behind us. And for those of us listening on the podcast, it's, it's a gorgeous, uh, it's a gorgeous cover of, of Selena holding basically hugging the joker with and she has a bunch of jewelry and it's it, it kind of underscores my confusion in the narrative i don't understand the, the present day story there's like you said there's th- there's three different tenses of the storylines being told and i don't understand selena appears to be in a relationship or she appears to be strangely fixated on the joker and i i don't understand it and the covers here sort of metaphorically alludes to that and I, I just don't get it. And she wants to kill him. She's she almost she's almost like very sexual and provocative with him in the present. She kills him in the future and she hates him in the past. And I and meanwhile, Batman is sort of a is sort of an afterthought in the entire story in my mind. And I I just don't know where this is supposed to be going. And it's called Batman Catwoman. And that I'm just confused. But uh, but hey, I mean, uh uh, I, I say I say to everyone that uh, Tom King has. If I add up all the com- stories that he's written that I've loved in the last few years versus uh, not so much loved, I'm far more in the like to love category than I am in the dislike. So uh, that's pretty good. Not every writer can say that that I've read. Yeah, um, and you wonder. I mean, this should have been done already in terms of you know if it came out on time with what it, when when it was scheduled to. So. Yeah, that's the other thing. I feel like it's last momentum. His his Batman runs two two years in the past at this point. So, yeah. uh, anyway, let's move on. Another Batman title because it's DC. Uh, we've got Batman versus Big B, a Wolf in Gotham number four from writer Bill Willingham. Yeah. Brian Lovell does the interiors. Jay Leistein on inks, and Lee Luffridge does the colors with. Oh. Uh, Sorry. Where's the letter? Oh, there it is. Steve Wan's on on letters. So uh, again, I, I'm not a big, uh, I'm not real knowledgeable when it comes to fables. I haven't I haven't read it. I'm not a big Bill Willingham fan. So I know this one speaks more to you, Rocky. What'd you think? Well, in, in this issue, we, we it finally uh, the the storyline finally starts to come to some degree of uh, fruition because. Uh, Last issue ended with Big B, the sort of the big bad wolf confronting confronting Batman, and uh, because there's this uh, the the villain, the Batman villain known as Bookworm, is essentially uh, trying to collect all these rare books, and and we we never we don't really know why. Now we know that in the land of fables, all the fairy tales they get their 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 actually characters in books. And so the guests that we, those of us who've read fables, we're thinking that, well, the fairy tales are in books and the stronger the belief in a fairy tale, the stronger your belief in Snow White and the Big Bad Wolf, the stronger these fables are. So uh, my guess was somebody was stealing all these rare books as a way to try to access the power of belief in the fables. And this was my wild theory that I had going on in my head. In any event, we finally get some revelation here that, uh, and it's in, in this issue, and Batman uh, gets one up on Big B Wolf. Uh, he has reactive armor that explodes, that incapacitates Big B. And <clears throat> ultimately, it's it's sort of this was very tropey. This issue, a little bit disappointed because it was very tropey. This was this was the moment in the classic moment where you got the two you get the two heroes who battle each other, and then they finally realize they're on the same side. 
But this is the issue where they realize, where Batman and Bigby realize they're on the same side, and that's it. They kind of, kind of kiss and make up, and in the grim and gritty fashion that only Batman and the Big Bad Wolf can. And they're going to go after the bookworm, and that's really exactly what they do. And basically, what it's discovered is that uh, Bigby and the rest of the fables are actually from another Earth. This is a ultimately this is a multiverse tale, and that ultimately on their Earth uh, there was a there was some magical explosion that and all these books from their earth were kind of a, a, a number of books and rare artifacts on the fables world have been lost in the multiverse and essentially big bad wolf big b the big bad wolf is he's 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 like the batman of the fables world and he's a, a very good detective in his own right and he's looking along with the other fables cinderella snow white etc cetera, etc cetera, they're looking for all these artifacts and they're looking for these rare, rare books. And ultimately, uh, Bookworm here is aware of the power that these books have. And uh, Bookworm's master plan here was to create all this chaos. And and he planned that, Gor he figured that Gordon, in order to protect all these rare books, would have all these rare books delivered to St. Jerome's Society's secret vault. And so Gordon fell right into the bookworm's trap. So the bookworm very wisely, he thought, well, since I can't find the books, why don't I get all the books to come to me? So he that's why he was blowing up all the libraries so that all the libraries would consolidate their books in one, one secret location. So that way he'd only have to attack one location instead of trying to go out all the libraries. So that's what that's the ma bookworm's master plan. And of course, Batman and Big Me ultimately figure it out. And at the final page is them confronting Bookworm. And then we're going to get a final issue that wraps everything up next issue, if I, if, if I read it correctly. But I enjoyed this. I enjoyed Brian Level's art. There's multiple inkers on it. Uh, it's again, it's a little tropey. I wish there was a, I wish there were more fables here. I wish there was a little bit more fables lore, to be honest. I think that, I think for readers like yourself that aren't as familiar with fables, I don't think this does enough justice to what fables is and how, how the different exciting angles that fables can bring to the forefront. But I am glad to, to get any kind of fables. Uh, but I, I actually think Bill Willingham, uh, this, this, this isn't this isn't his best by any stretch, but I'm glad that we got some of it. Um, and uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping we can get some more. But I wish uh, it doesn't quite have the the degree of Bill Willingham's type of humor that he had in Fables and in his Jack of Fables run. But it was nonetheless, it's 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 still a good read, and and uh, it's if you're a fan of Fables and Batman, I mean, I I do think that this is kind of a must read. Yeah, I sort of felt like, okay, I finally understand what's going on, um, but in a way, it it sort of made the previous three issues like like this could have been the first issue almost. Could have been. You know, we could have added a, a a page or two to the to the beginning with a wolf running through Gotham, and then you know Batman catches him or whatever, and then you go right into this. So it it made a lot of what came before feel a little unnecessary in a way because yeah. uh, I feel like, okay, the, the, we're finally getting some explanation of what's going on. Um, and so I'm like, what have I been, why have I been reading this so far? Cause I feel like this, this is the only issue where we really got a lot of forward momentum. So, you know, again, if, if you're a big fan of fables, maybe you feel differently because you get, get a chance to see big bean running around Gotham or whatever, but I, I'm not, I have no, 
investment in those characters. So for me, it was like, okay, yeah, th this is the best issue so far because I finally understand what's going on. Uh, granted that we did get a little bit of a different, um, this is a different take on Batman. You know, it's, it is black label and certainly a different take on the Robins from Bill Willingham. So I, I'm not saying there's no value in the previous three issues, but in terms of what's going on, this, this is the issue that really explained it. So, uh, and, and the art from Brian Levels fantastic. So that's a, that's a reason to pick it up as well. Uh, all right. Up next, we have more Batman because, yeah, it's DC. So uh, another Black Label book. It's from Jock. He does the story and art. Letters are by, by Clem Robbins. It's Batman One Dark Knight, book one. Um, I'm not sure how many issues this is supposed to be, but a little bit tropey in terms of it's a story that we've seen countless times in um, movies and TV and whatnot where it's a prisoner transfer. In this case, they're transferring this guy whose initials are EMP. You know, and <laughs> like how how tropey can it be, right? This guy's name is is EMP. Those are his initials. And what what powers does he have? Of course, he has uh, electrical powers. So he's being <laughs> transported from Gotham uh, or from uh, Arkham Asylum to uh, to Blackgate Prison, where he has uh, this containment unit that's that's supposed to, you know, prevent him from sucking up all this energy and and actually being an EMP. So, and he's kind of he's an interesting figure in that he's he's not out and out bad. But what happens is when he's not contained in a Faraday cage to uh, to stop his powers from manifesting, basically, he starts absorbing energy. Uh, all kinds of energy, like even electrical impulses in, in people's brains and whatnot. Um, and the more he absorbs, the more he wants. So he's, he's kind of like a junkie in that way. Um, so Batman, of course, is, is keeping an eye on the convoy. And of course, things go sideways and everything's all messed up and it's up to Batman. He's basically has this guy draped over his shoulder and he's going to have to go, you know, X number of city blocks fighting through all these gangs that are for some reason fighting over trying to get control of EMP, maybe to, you know, use them as their own weapon. And Batman's, you know, again, very cliche, throws him over his shoulder. Oh, I guess we, you know, we have to do this the hard way. Uh, and he's going to have to go, you know, fighting block by block to take this guy EMP uh, the last half of his journey to get to, to Blackgate uh, while trying to keep him away from, <laughs> You know, electricity is like the whole, all of Gotham is blacked out because the guy goes to, to downtown, basically where all the neon is, because that's where the most electricity is. And, you know, it's like a moth to a flame. And so, uh, but again, it, it it's it's interesting that I, I find that to be the most interesting part because he could have just been a mustache twirling villain or he could have just, you know, in, in a way he's, he's a plot device, but at least Jock gave us, you know, something interesting about him when he, he sort of even when the convoys first attacked and his Faraday cage is broken, he yells out to Batman, like, Hey, help me. You know, it's like, he doesn't want to be absorbing the stuff while he still has his faculties about, it. and then he starts absorbing energy and he just kind of loses it. Right. Hmm. So yeah, this Edward M. Pressler EMP uh, is an interesting character in his own right now. Again, little tropey jury's still out. I, I did it in as much as it is tropey and this whole idea of, you know, like, I think what is it like sixteen blocks is the one with uh with Bruce Willis and there's yeah. one with uh, 
I think John Travolta and those are remakes of others. Like I said, th- this has been, uh, you know, around for a long time. You can even make the argument that all-star Batman from Scott Snyder was, you know, similar to this transporting Two-Face or whatnot. Um, but I, in terms of mood and tone, I think Jock does a, does a good job. And, and like I said, the, the EMP character is, is interesting. Um, as far as the art, it is very, it's very gritty, which you would expect from, you know, a, a Jock book. Um, that's just sort of his style. I'm not the biggest fan of his style. Um, and then the other aspect of it is, uh, that he does make it seem very, I don't want to say cinematic cause that word gets overused in describing comics, but he makes it feel like an event, you know, he, yeah. his, the art's impactful, especially when you see EMP's powers kind of go hay- haywire at times. Um, so yeah, he does a good job of, of making the art feel uh impactful so I, I i expect this to do very very well um i just don't know how memorable memorable it's going to be because the core kind of the core um framework of the story is just something that we've seen you know many times before so uh, anyway what do you think robbie well it's for some reason it reminded me of the movie uh, 13th precinct yeah that one Ethan that's another one. yeah and yeah. and it just and so i i kind of like the premise and it's uh I'm interested to see how what Jock does with it. His his art really is uh, fantastic, and I'll be I'll happily use that cliche word cinematic because it it just feels that cool. It feels like you got some explosions and every there, there's a reason why for every explosion there's a reason for every action scene and 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 it's emotional and it's visceral. I mean, you got this. You got. I mean, I know it's a little bit tropey. We get a lot of these characters that want to go and clean up Gotham that are that are sort of like the the opposites of uh, James Gordon Jim Gordon and in this case it's a Rita Vasquez she's a head of the prison bureau and she wants to sort of clean up Gotham and she wants to transport some of the prisoners away from Arkham because they don't need treatment they you know enough with the compassion we need to clamp down on crime we need to take the weapons off the streets and 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 the way the way that this comic book started off graphic novel started off was really awesome it was just it was Batman talking to Alfred, and you could tell that there was a lot of tension in the air and about you know transporting this prisoner, and there was a lot of concern that okay this is EMP and and we didn't we didn't even know initially who EMP was, and I I of course I hear the word the initials EMP like most people I think of electromagnetic pulse right and 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 it just so happens his name like you said is uh, Edward whatever M. Presser. Yeah, what a what a coincidence. Yeah, what a is. coincidence that it's actually in his power is an EMP of some kind that takes out all the lights and everything else. So it is a little bit kind of cliche, but I mean, you know, that's that's all well and good. I mean, we're we're used to that in comic books, but no, this this was uh, this was uh, J- uh, Jock is known for his art, but he did his. I think he did a good job here with the script. Uh, there's good dialogue here. It's it's a, it's a good. It's got a solid foundation of a story. It's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, I think it's believable. It's, uh, I mean, this is something that you can see this happening with Gotham, uh, especially now with, you know, with, with Arkham Asylum, there's a lot, there's a lot that's happening with Arkham Asylum in the mainstream comics. And the fact that the whole, the whole rehabilitation versus, uh, retribution aspect of uh, criminal justice is something that's it's timely and it's something you see in Batman a lot. And I think this is going to have, there are people who love Jacques art. And I think this is definitely going to find its audience very, very easily. And you're right. This is competing with a lot of Batman titles right now. Lord knows there's a lot of Batman titles, but I think for a lot of people, especially when this is a collected edition, this is probably going to be a go-to hardcover. This is probably going to make a nice, you know, 
uh, done in you know a nice single hardcover Batman issue and make a nice gift to somebody. Yeah, and the other thing, this is Jock's first time going solo writing. I don't, I don't know if he's ever written anything before at all. That's a good point. Um, obviously, yeah, he's known for for his art, especially working with uh, with Scott Snyder. So, yeah, I mean, for for a first time writer, if, if this is indeed his first first time writing anything, I thought the pacing was was done really really well, um, which is something that usually kind of novice writers struggle with. So, you know, hat, hats off to Jock again. It's it's not the most original idea, but it was definitely enjoyable. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Nubia and the Amazons issue number three. Again, leading into the uh, trial of Amazons event. This is written by Stephanie Williams and Vita Ayala. Stephanie Williams handles the scripting. Aletha Martinez and Domo Stanton are on pencils. Mark Morales does the inks. Romulo Fajardo Jr. on colors. And uh, I guess nobody does the letters. There's nobody listed as the letter um so yeah sorry i'm not sure who who lettered it apologies to whoever i'm uh not crediting there um which is kind of crappy because the lettering actually in this issue is important we get uh, medusa several times and her word balloons look different and her font is a little different and it's it's done very very well by whoever the letter artist is my uh, I, my guess is it's steve wands but that's just a guess um anyway what did you think of this rocky I uh, I actually this is my uh, this is my favorite of the Amazon titles right you know, between Wonder Woman Wonder Girl and Nubia and the Amazons I'm enjoying this one the most I think that uh, uh, Stephanie Williams and Vita Ayala are doing a really good job on this uh, this feels like a you know for the first time in in a long you know a long time I feel that that Themyscira really is an island of 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 women of uh, you know. Diversity. This is an eclectic, uh, diverse group of women, and the the whole idea of the Well of Souls and and Doom's doorway opening up, and Medusa sneaking through. The spirit of Medusa possessing the Amazons, possessing Andromeda here, and uh, essentially with the goal of well, we're not really sure what Medusa's goal is here, but we we know that we we know that there are a number of creatures that are escaping from Doom's doorway. We had Torrid, the character known as Torrid, is, uh, come out of Doom's doorway uh, and is in the pages of Black Manta. We know that there's a one monster that came out and that attacked the Banga Magdal tribe in the, in the, in the backup of uh, Wonder Woman title in, in the prologue to Pro- Trial of the Amazons. Uh, we know that Nubia was the original champion that guarded. Uh, queen Nubia was the original champion before she was queen. She was the champion who guarded the the uh, Doom's doorway and prevented creatures from escaping, including the creature known as Medusa. What's in what's what what's interesting here is that this is a focus on the on the trauma and the and the the various uh, abuse that these women suffered that led to them dying and then coming back through the well of souls to become. To, to become Amazons and Themyscira, there's a focus on that and on, on what they remember. And what I find very interesting here in terms of what uh, Stephanie Williams and Vita Ayala are doing is that it's, I think it's clear what they're doing is that they're going to try to make Medusa a sympathetic character. And now what's interesting about that is that, you know, I'm a, I, I, I was a professional student at one part of my life, and uh, uh, I, I do remember uh, reading on there was a, there's a controversy about Medusa that Medusa 
Medusa's origins are actually grounded in, in Greek mythology, of course, which is grounded in a lot of misogyny. And Medusa, in fact, was one of the, one of the of the three Gorgon sisters. She was the only only mortal one, and she was actually raped by Poseidon. And Athena's Athena, who was the wife of Poseidon, punished Medusa. So even though now there's different there's different versions of the story. One is that Poseidon seduced Medusa, or Medusa and Poseidon were together. But in any event, they cheated on Medu uh, uh, Poseidon. Is, is basically his wife is uh, Athena and Medusa comes along and sleeps with Poseidon. One version of the story has Poseidon raping Medusa and Medusa gets punished for being raped, literally. And of course, uh, Athena punishes Medusa by because she was a beautiful woman. She punishes Medusa by giving her the snakes for, for the hair and anyone that would look upon her face would turn to stone. I mean... Athena, just like, you know, all so many Greek gods and goddesses, are, they're just assholes. They're bitches. <laughs> I mean, they're just cruel, cruel gods, right? And so Medusa has a sympathetic element to her. So what's fascinating about it is that she's in Doom's doorway. Could it be that we're going to be building up to a redemption of Medusa herself, that Medusa herself is also a tortured female soul that was abused just like all the Amazons in Paradise Island are. Maybe Medusa is drawn to Paradise Island, Themyscira, for precisely the reason that other women are drawn to it who are abused through the Well of Souls. So I think it's fascinating. The chap this particular chapter is called What is Truth? I find that interesting. And also, uh, for those who are into uh, the, the LGBT community, there is very much, there's a, definitely a, a lot of passion here between Nubia and Io, who is the, the Amazon that makes the weapons for the Amazons. Uh, there's, there's definitely a, there's a, a love scene here. It's very, very passionate. There's, there's love and affection here. I think that the relationship is played very well between Queen Nubia. There, uh, it's clear that Io cares great, uh, great, greatly for Queen Nubia, and the uh, and they're reflecting on their past and they're trying to remember what what brought them to Themyscira, and Queen Nubia is reflecting upon her her role as a champion and that she doesn't remember all of her past life before she was an Amazon because she spent so much time guarding Doom's doorway and her memories are slowly coming back to her. I think that there's. Uh, I think this is a this is a very well told story. I'm I'm fascinated by this. I'm particularly fascinated what's going to happen with Medusa. I said to you before, J uh, Jace, that one of the things about Wonder Woman's villains is that they're always they're broken in some way. All of Wonder Woman's villains all end up being some broken in some way, and Medusa might end up being no different. And so this might be a redemption act for Medusa of all things. I don't think this is the same Medusa that Wonder Woman uh, dealt with in Greg Rucka's run when she chopped off the head because this is the new DC Omniverse, but I am fascinated by this. There's also dissension in the Amazonian ranks. There's dissension. Uh, there's some disagreement as to how Queen Nubia is leading them, because they still haven't had a contest to decide who's going to be the new champion to guard Doom's doorway. Doom's doorway. Also, from future solicits, we know in the trial of the Amazons that all three tribes of Amazons are going to have one massive contest, I believe, to decide their new champion maybe to to guard doom's doorway i'm not sure but clearly i'm this is by far the most interesting to me and i i really enjoy this i really like the art as well and i also give got to give credit to the writers they there's so many amazons but they do a really good job unlike some other writers like tim sheridan for example uh, 
there's Xena, Carissa, Andromeda, Baia, Epstein, Philippus, uh, and, and Nubia. We got all these different names of Amazons and we know who they are because they reference each other by name and it's not done so in a, in a, in a confusing manner. This is something where if you take the time to read it and just enjoy it, this is a, there's a good story here and this, I'm enjoying this. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm enjoying this more than I've enjoyed an Wonder Woman, uh, uh, related title in quite a long time. So what do you think? Yeah, I feel like I'd enjoy it more if I was a little more knowledge about knowledgeable about the Amazons and, and Wonder Woman. But I mean, that's the whole point. Like, I feel like we haven't gotten enough of this kind of stuff, right? Like this is an Amazonian title and Wonder Woman's nowhere to be seen. And I love that. And I am a fan of Nubia. Uh, and I did like the Nubia backups that we got in the, uh, in the future state uh, titles. What I don't particularly care for here. And, and don't get me wrong. I'm a fan of Domo Stanton, um, but his style and Stephanie um, or Aletha Martinez, rather, the other artists, their, their styles aren't really very similar. Um, and I'm not sure exactly how, how they divided it up. Um, but they're colored similarly. So it is, it is a little bit hard to tell when, you know, who's doing what. Domo tends to make his characters a little more stocky, a little shorter. Their, their faces are a little, um, a little wider. So you can you can kind of tell if I you know stop and, and study the pages which which artist did which page. Um, so I, I like Aletha Martinez on this. I think she's the right artist. And again, not that Domo's a bad artist. I love certain things that he's done. He's not the right artist for, the, for to draw uh, beautiful women. It's just not in his, you know not in his wheelhouse. Um, so that that kind of bugged me a little bit. Basically, it looks like Domo did like the first half and Aletha did the, did the second half. So maybe she just needed to get caught up. You know, maybe she got sick. It happens. It's not a big deal because it's not jarring, but it is noticeable, especially if you're, if you're, you know, if you're looking for it. Uh, but I agree with you. This is the best uh, Wonder Woman or, or Wonder Woman adjacent title that we've had in a long time. It does have me curious to learn more about the Amazons. I love the mythology, what's going on, um, and sort of the political machinations and and all that and i'm not usually a big fan of getting into the mythology of wonder woman like i got enough greek mythology when i was in college um but i mean it's it's part of the wonder woman lore so so i'm fine with that and i think both the writers are doing an incredible job of making this compelling and uh, i hope when the trial of the amazons is over that uh, we still have some books that are focused on the other amazons like besides Wonder Woman. It does sound like the more and more I hear about DC's plans for 2022, and we see solicits or whatever, it's gonna there's gonna be a lot of changes. Like, you know, Bendis is done with with Justice League. We may have a new uh, champion of the Amazons, a, a new Wonder Woman, if if you will. Uh, yeah, we're hearing a lot about a lot of changes. Plus, yeah, you know, we still have Joshua Williamson's plan. So yeah, it's gonna be an interesting year, I think, for uh, for DC overall. Yeah, I hear you. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Nightwing number 87. <laughs> this is a book that's been long talked about. And uh, Bruno Redondo has been working on it for months and months and months. He is listed as a storyteller along with Tom Taylor. Uh, and the thing that makes this issue special is the entire issue is basically one long panel. Um, so if you, you know, if, if you laid all the pages out end to end, it would be just one long panel, one long story. So um, 
it's really cool to look at. It's really great to follow the the narrative and see Nightwing, you know, chasing after these guys who've kidnapped his dog and, you know, teaming <laughs> up with Batgirl. And I mean, the amount of work and the design and the layout, just a huge, huge amount of work from Bruno Redondo. So I don't, I mean, it's just an incredible issue. I love it. I'll buy multiple copies of it because it also has like three, it, it has like every cover, all three of the covers that I've seen are all fantastic. Like there's a regular cover by Bruno Redondo that's got a lot of pinks and blues. It's fantastic. There's another more photorealistic one where Nightwing's hanging out with his dog. That's great. And then there's like a character design one showing um, uh, Nightwing's uh, batons or his sticks that he fights with. Uh, and that one's fantastic. So like there's everything to love about this issue. Now, that being said, if I had to nitpick anything like so we had a big break in terms of not having any uh, any of Bruno Redondo, Tom Taylor, Nightwing, right? Because we had the future state stuff. And now they're finally back on the book. And this, in terms of story, moving that story that they're making forward, this really doesn't do this. You know, I, I don't want to use the word gimmick because it's, it's, it's so, it's clear you put so much work into it and, you know, and it is a really cool visual thing, but this is more about showing off this really cool way to tell a story in comics, you know, a story that you could only tell in comics this way. Um, but I, I'm just, I'm so ready to get back to the meat of the story that Tom Taylor was, was telling. So again, it's, yeah. I, I don't begrudge them doing this, but I almost wish we would have got one issue, like let us get back into the swing of the story that they were telling and then do this. And I think I would appreciate it even, even more. Cause again, yeah. this just, it doesn't, there's not much story here. Like. I think you, I think you, I think Taylor, I think he did it. I think Taylor just gave Redundo. I think Redundo asked him, do you mind if I shine for an issue and just uh, let yeah. me go to town and do what yeah, I and want? I, again, and I, I don't mind. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't, I don't mind that at all. Um, but it's to their credit that, man, I'd love what they're doing in terms of narrative. Um, so, cause yeah, I mean, basically Dick Grayson's on the phone with Barbara Gordon walking along with his briefcase and she's talking about having a hit, a hits, a $10 million hits out on him. And he's like, Nightwing's had hits put out on him before. He's like, no, this one's on Dick Grayson. And then he ducks into an alley and changes to Nightwing. And that's another thing. It's like, really? He's running up a fire escape, changing to Nightwing. Like there's people right across the street. They can see you. Hello. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought that was kind of kind of funny but I, I you know how else do you illustrate it where i mean i don't know i guess he could have ducked in du there could have been a fence there and he when he popped up but whatever it, it's a minor nitpick and so is the fact that i'm i'm ready to get back to the the main story um but that doesn't dis diminish at all how awesome this is visually like this is a visual treat uh i wouldn't be surprised to see this nominated for like best single issue or you know uh Bruno Redondo nominated for best artist or, or anything like that. Cause this is, this is fantastic. I, I think of it in terms of um, like one of those seminal issues that may, people may be talking about decades later, you know, like the, uh, the GI Joe silent issue. Cause again, right. I mean, this, this isn't the first time that a comic's done this. Um, but I, I think this might be the most mainstream. Like I, I think there was an issue of action man over at IDW that did this. And there's been some others that have, that have done it, but 
This it is, reminds think, me of the Hawkeye issue with uh, Matt Fraction, where there was the dog yeah. issue. The entire issue yeah. was just a dog, and it didn't really move the story. But I mean, it was fun, yeah. and it, it won awards, and it just. And this yeah. is one of those things too. I think it's going to, like you said, it's going to might even win a award. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. So, yeah, I expect a lot of people to be talking about this, and you better get to your comic shop early to pick this up because I, I bet it's going to sell out well, quick. Yeah, it involves puppies, man. I mean, it, I got, I already know there's a couple of friends I have uh, on uh, at Weird Science TC on the chat that they they always they, they they poke fun at Tom Taylor because he he he'll always tug at the heartstrings uh, at times, and sometimes he'll make up uh, he'll make up for a lack of substance in his stories by just character moments, and the character moments are so good you can forget the fact that the story never moved. <laughs> and uh, Tom Taylor is good at that. He can he can actually put some great character moments in his story and but then when you stop and think about it the story never moved but you're totally forgiving him because it's like you know you feel so good by the time you're done reading the comic and now here here we got a, a puppy being rescued well how can you get upset with this comic <laughs> it's a puppy yeah, he's rescued yeah. <laughs> and the art's so gorgeous so i mean come on <laughs> what's there to bitch yeah, when i started <laughs> when i started reading it and yeah, the puppy got kidnapped i out loud i'm like no <laughs> Not bite wing, not bite wing. Yeah, she's like, what? What happened? I'm like, somebody kidnapped Nightwing's dog. She's like, oh my god, shut up. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Well, they got him in the end, though. That's the good part. Yeah. (laughs) Anything else to uh, anything else to add about this rocket before we move? Uh, No, uh, it's a bite wing Haley. I wonder what people prefer to call him because I they gave him two names here. His name's Haley, and then I think. Bitewing, I think. Th- Bitewing, yeah. So I, I think uh, you know they did a poll. Tom Taylor did a poll on Twitter, and Haley won out, but Bitewing was second. And I think they're both so great. Yeah. Um, you know, Haley is for Haley Circus, where uh, the Flying Graysons were a part of, and Bitewing. Yeah, I think they're both. Yeah, they're both they're mentioned both in the comic. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, all right. Up next, another Wonder Woman title: Wonder Woman Evolution Part Two, from writer Stephanie Phillips. Mike Hawthorne is the penciler. Adriano Di Benedetto does the inks, Jordi Blair on colors, Tom Napolitano on letters. Um, I thought this was was pretty solid. Uh, the artwork from uh, from Mike Hawthorne's spectacular. Um, and, we, and we really sort of got a big chunk of story at the end that, that moved it forward and sort of explained, uh, wait, what's going to happen in this series? Uh, right at the end, we're, we're shown that Wonder Woman's been chosen to... Uh, stand before these beings, whatever they're called. I don't know if they say what they are, um, but they basically tell uh, one of them, this is where judgment occurs, where you will stand trial for all of humanity, which I find so fascinating because Wonder Woman's not human, <laughs> but yet she's going to stand trial for yeah. all humanity. Yeah. But uh, yeah. What did you think, Rocky? Uh, I honestly, um, this we're two issues in and, and this story hasn't, has now just my criticism last issue was that we, it was a wasted issue because this story, uh, I thought we could finally start the story. This story hasn't begun until the end of this issue. This is Wonder Woman finally gets to where she's at. The uh, virtually the first 14 pages are just one massive hallucination. She thinks she's on Themyscira. She discovers that she's not. She finally at the very last page, uh, there's a mysterious voice that says to her, this is not the mascara. She asks, who are you? And it says, wrong question. You are being selected. You do not fit in. You're part God, part Amazon, part human, etc. 
you know, uh, where do you fit in? And you don't fit in. And yet, despite the fact that she's part all this stuff and doesn't fit in, they're going to make her the, the judger of humanity. And that's how it ends. And it ends the final page. It shows these cosmic gods or these these gods that are going to make her be the, the arbiter and the judge and to judge or, or pardon me, they're going to make her defend humanity. And and I guess in fairness to Stephanie uh, Phillips, uh I think that I think that the solicits did not do this title any favors because the solicits pretty much said from the beginning what the story is, but that's not going to be the story until issue three now, <laughs> because we we she's just got there and we're we're just we still technically don't know exactly what what these gods have a beef with Earth about. We still don't know, and we're at the end of the second issue, and so that's my only thing is that I don't feel this has moved very much. I, I will. I, I want to give compliments to Mike Hawthorne's art penciling here. I think it's better than the first issue. I think it's it's grown on me. The the colors here by uh, uh, Jordi Baller is fantastic. Uh, Adriano uh, Di Benedetto inker. I think the the inks c- come up pretty well. There, there's some gorgeous full page spreads here of uh, of Diana. You know, walking through the uh, what ends up being the sort of the illusion of of Paradise Island. It's very well done. Beautiful, you know, looks like the lighting and this, I mean, just the pages, they really are beautiful. And there's this, this fake Steve Trevor that attacks her. I mean, it's, it's very well paced and laid out. Uh, again, just my, my constructive criticism is that it, it, it really doesn't feel like this story is moving very fast. And because, because I feel I do feel that we're sort of treading on some old ground here in terms of Wonder Woman, like judging humanity. And I got the same question you have. Well, Wonder Woman, I'm still wondering why Wonder Woman is a choice. I mean, I, I mean, she, uh, I guess I can understand in a sense. I mean, she was asked to be a member of the quintessence for God's sake. So, I mean, uh, if anybody has wisdom, it would be Wonder Woman. So I guess she could be a, she could defend anybody really. So I guess in that respect, I get it. I'm just wondering, I would have liked to have seen more. I'd like to have seen the origins of the gods that want that. are. Why are the gods so upset with humanity that they're and what 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 was the mechanism by which they decided to choose Wonder Woman as opposed to the the, the curious narrative choices that in the first issue with her and in the in the museum and and then here almost the entire issue with her confronting an illusion and a, and a, and a fake Steve Trevor who's attacking her. I just thought it was, um, you know, again, it, it's beautiful art and she definitely gives, uh, she allows Mike Harthorn to show off his pencils and the colorist to, sh- to show off as well. I just, I just wish the narrative was a little bit more informative. Yeah. I wondered about that myself. The thing is I didn't feel like, so the first issue, I don't want to say it was a waste, but I, I I agree. Like I, I was fine with taking the time to get there with this issue because I feel like Stephanie's going to call back to the beginning of this with, uh, with Steve Trevor and with the illusion. And it, I don't know, it sort of set the tone and the mood for what the relationship will be like between Wonder Woman and, and whoever these gods are that are, that are judging. So I feel like it was necessary, but it definitely felt like this could have been the first issue. Um, Cause when I'm, you know, being honest, I, I barely remember the first issue, you know? Um, yeah. So I feel like this, this could have been, been the first issue. So uh, I agree with you, but I, I, I definitely expect Stephanie Phillips to expand and answer all the questions that, that we have. 
Um, last thing I'll mention is just one more time, the Mike Hawthorne art, like just fantastic. And as great and as powerful as he draws Wonder Woman in kind of the hallucinatory or uh, illusionary part of the book, when she's actually transported to stand in front of this triumphant or, or how actually it's, I guess it's a quartet of, uh, of gods that are going to judge, like once she has her hair braided and she's in kind of the tighter, um, more svelte clothing that covers up more of her skin. I, I just think it's fantastic. Like, yeah. I don't know that people realize how hard it is to draw like a French braid like that. Uh, but I just think <laughs> she looks badass with her hair all, all pulled back and braided. She uh, looks like much. a warrior woman for sure. Yeah. Yeah. He, he draws her very muscular, but she looks very powerful. So I definitely appreciated that. Uh, okay. Up next, we have Suicide Squad, King Shark number four from writer Tim Seeley. Scott Collins is the artist. John Kalis on colors. Wes Abbott on letters. Uh, I'll talk about the art first. And I, I'm going to say the same thing I've said throughout. Scott Collins is a good choice for art on here because his art is very kinetic, but it's also a little bit frenetic. And when you pair that up with a storyline which can be a little confusing at times it does make this like a, a book that you you have to pay attention to what's going on or it's easily lost because it's you know there's a lot of characters coming in and out and you know there's magic going on there's different suicide squads that are showing up that are trying to uh you know capture king shark and whatnot and so it definitely makes for a, an interesting narrative. And I, I feel like, you know, DC put this out the, to capitalize on the popularity of King Shark from the Suicide Squad movie, but that was so many months in the past. Like, who's really paying attention at this point? Like, is this book still selling to those people? I don't know. Um, I hope so, but I, I kind of have my doubts. It makes me think, well, if this whole thing was done, or if you wanted to tell the story, you should have just had the whole thing done and just released it as a, as a, like a, you know, graphic novel when the movie came out just to give people the whole story. Um, that being said, it, there is some emotion here with King shark's father dying and, and him wondering if he's going to have to take over the role or not. And uh, some emotional moments, but I don't know that it, it really resonates because at the end of the day, these are sharks. They're not people. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not shark crazy. Like a lot of people are. I never saw the suicide squad movie. I like King shark well enough, but you know, I, I not the way some people love him the you know from the secret six run that gail simone did and whatnot so overall this is just okay i feel like it's not a story that's really going to be memorable when it's all said and done um but it's fun uh and and i think the scott collins art does a does a good job i mean we get black bison he doesn't show up very often he's a overlooked character we get some <laughs> demon who feels like they're using him everywhere these days i'm not sure it's a it's a demon renaissance these days he's showing up everywhere but uh yeah i thought it was i thought it was solid uh really good color work from john kalish uh, as well so uh did you did you get a chance to check this one out rocky uh yeah i did uh i actually i like the character of defacer i actually find her funny my my favorite issue my favorite moment in the issue is where she uses uh paint the acetone from her paint spray where she actually sprays she sprays uh uh Nanu's or whatever his name, uh, King Shark's arm, and that's bitten off by that by that rat creature, and then he, yeah. you know, <laughs> and then he kind of he, he, he's killed because the acetone kills the rat, and so she helps she helps King Co Shark cockroach the yeah, cockroach, the cockroach yeah. yeah cockroach avatar yeah 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 the whole avatar thing it's it you know uh, Tim Seeley you know he, he's I got to give him some credit he thought outside the boxer I thought a little bit 
I would have this this story is really out there to me. Uh really, I mean he's really he's incorporated creatures from all over the the animal kingdom and bug kingdom to create all these avatars and and then King Shark's father wanting to toughen up his son to one day sort of take over for him and and he decides of all things that when his son is young, he's going to give him to Amanda Waller to toughen him up. <laughs> I mean, I yeah. Mean, worst parent ever. Yeah. That's like the oddest thing to do, but, but yeah, I, I guess it's, I mean, it's, I actually find it more funny because I, I think of your expression, cause I know how much you like Amanda Waller. And I think, yeah, that's, that's one way to, that's one way to piss off some kid. I mean, it's one thing to send send an adult to be a member of the Suicide Squad, but most of the time you don't volunteer. You know, I mean, you certainly don't send your children to Amanda Waller's school of suicide. Come on, it's crazy. But uh, there, th- there's an insanity to this. This is um, this is like a more. Um, it reminds me of Keith Giffen a little bit. Uh, Team Sealy's writing yeah. on here a little bit, and yeah. uh, even the sort of like the artistic style. It reminds me of, uh, well, I guess it reminds me of Scott Collins. It is Scott Collins. But in any event, it it has a sort of a Keith Giffen type of uh, a storytelling sensibility to it. So if you're a uh, if you're a guy, anyone who's a Keith Giffen fan, this would definitely be one to pick up. But uh, yeah, so, it, you know, Tim Seeley, it's, it's interesting. DC's give, giving Tim Seeley some odd projects. King Shark, uh, Superman and Lobo. Tim Seeley's also doing uh, uh, one other what other ones are you doing? Robins. Robins, yeah. And uh, you know, not not my first choice of, of titles to read by DC, but Tim Seeley, it's like he's a good soldier, you know, he's you know, he's doing his best to make these sort of eclectic characters I, I think kind of interesting. Robins, well we'll get to Robins in a moment. He's actually putting uh he's actually uh you know, I think he's doing a reasonably good job, despite the fact that it wasn't my cup of tea, Robbins. It's it's we'll get to that. It's a little bit better than I'd maybe thought it would be. But in any event, uh yeah, this this was this is fun. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the best thing we can say about it. It was fun, it was entertaining. So uh all right, up next we have Catwoman Lonely City number two. It's another black label book written, drawn, colored, and lettered by Cliff Chang. Like he's doing it all. And uh he did two of the three covers as well. There's also a one in 25 variant cover by Marguerite Savage. Uh, yeah, I thought this was fantastic. What'd you think, Rocky? Uh, I enjoyed this. Uh, this was, uh, this is Catwoman 10 years from now. Uh, you know, she's out of prison. Uh, Batman is dead. Bruce Wayne is dead. Joker is dead. Harley Quinn is not around. Uh, and uh, Harvey Dent is running for mayor uh, against Barbara Gordon who's opposing him and um and I love I love sort of a lot of the interesting little tidbits that are revealed that's that form a, a central part of this narrative is that is that Selena Kyle she wants to break into the Batcave but it's 10 years later and after uh after after the events 10 years ago that that led to the death of the Joker and Batman being taken off the playing field uh, the Batcave. Nobody can get into the Batcave. It's sealed off. Nobody can get into it. And uh, and and to, uh, Harvey Dent wants to get break into the Batcave, but no one can get into it. Selena wants to get into the Batcave. There's a project Orpheus that that Selena found out about that is it was sort of a it was a secret project that uh, Batman never even told Barbara Gordon about. She she came across it in her in her hacking of trying to get into the Batcave, uh, and 
meanwhile, you know, Catwoman, you know, there, there's no more masks in the city. Like there's no more capes. And she's trying to put together her old gang. And what I find the most interesting about this, and I want to give compliments to Cliff Shang, is is he's done a good job here of, you know, what he's done with all these characters. Uh, seeing Edward Nigma. Uh, Edward Nigma is the Riddler. He's a recovered alcoholic, has, hasn't had a drink in 12 years. He talks about how he, he was half the time he was on cocaine when he was the Riddler. <laughs> and and he's got a daughter. And, and uh, uh, Riddler's daughter, this... Uh, Edwina or whatever her name is. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, Ed- Ad- Adelia, Riddler's daughter, essentially becomes uh, Selena Kyle's new new sidekick, and she's quite she's quite a skilled acrobat her- herself. And um, everything flowed out of this fool's night, and a fool's night was the night that again, when the Joker was defeated and died, Batman died, uh, and it looks like Ivy died. We, uh, or pardon me, uh, Harley Quinn died. We 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 meet an older uh, poison ivy uh, in in the in in the Brazilian jungle where uh, Selena you know she's putting together a new team of of Croc uh, Ted Grant Wildcat OG Beast and her son Winston who's an electrical engineer and he he's sort of uh, <laughs> he's he's a younger guy and it's funny he he remembers Catwoman and. And he, he remembers Catwoman fondly as a young teenager. And at one point, Selena asks him, you know, he says, I got I have a po- I had a poster of you on my wall when I was younger. And she said, well, which one? And he, he sort of gets all quiet and goes, oh, the one with the purple suit. <laughs> and of course, those of us who collect Catwoman know that's the Jim Ballantes of Catwoman. And so that's the more sexually provocative uh, Catwoman. And she just, Selena pats him on the back and says, oh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, later on in the in the narrative, uh, there's another uh, another character says, "I had a poster of you on the wall." She says, "Which one?" And he goes, "Oh," and, and and they reference the Darwin Cook style, and you know that's the one that's Selena's favorite uh, too. And I think it's it's most I think that's probably the most fan favorite one. I think I, it's probably split between the more sexually provocative Jim Ballant versus the Darwin Cook style. But in any event, little things like that. Watching uh, Selena struggle as an older woman trying to get back into shape, being trained by uh, Ted uh, Ted Grant Wildcat, and uh, you know her just forming her new group again, getting her groove back as she's uh, as she's trying to get back on top and essentially get back into the Batcave. To uh, I'm not I'm not even sure what her end game is here, but at one point she even tries to steal a Green Lantern ring. She steals Alan Scott's old power battery, but they can't get it to work, so they got to go to Plan B, which is going to the Brazilian jungle to to get the help of Poison Ivy. So, uh, this is wildly fun. This is wildly fun, and there's something great. Uh, I I love uh, this. Reminds me a lot. Cliff Chang. Cliff Chang was the artist on the the Brian. He was the artist on Wonder Woman during the New 52 with uh, Brian Azzarello. And while some people don't like that version of Wonder Woman, that's I, I, I quite enjoyed that version of Wonder Woman. And I, lo- I fell in love with K- Cliff Chang's art on that as well. He also uh, was with Brian K. Vaughan. He, he's the artist on, on Girls uh, or Paper Girls. And so he's got, I think he's got a good, strong following there. And I hope sales on this are, are good because I think it deserves it. This is one of the, I think this is one of the more consistent and better written Catwoman tales that I've read in a long time. Uh, and, and that's, that's, I, I'm enjoying this as much as I'm, as I enjoyed maybe even a little bit more than I enjoyed the early issues of Ram V. And that's a compliment to both Ram V and Cliff Chang. So uh, what do you think? Yeah, I really liked it. This is my favorite book of the week. Um, 
and I and I say that not being a big fan of Clip Chang's art. Like he, his art definitely has a retro style. Um, for me, the, his line weights are a little thick, which always makes his art seem sort of static to me, and it doesn't it doesn't flow really well. Um, but that being said, the, the art here is is really fantastic. It, it's just more of a kind of a personal a personal thing. So I don't deny at all that the, the storytelling is strong visually and narratively, and uh, and and the artwork is spectacular. It's just you know not not my favorite. Um, but what I love about this, in, in terms of Catwoman being being ten years down the road, she's caught out of prison. There's all these rules with Dent. You know, he ever since Fool's Night, when the Joker basically uh, you know, kind of similar to Joker War, you got a bunch of people to buy into his nonsense and kill people and put on clown masks and you know, pull out machine guns and just everything went sort of nuts. And since that night, um, the city sort of rejected vigilantism and, and rejected masks. And that's why nobody can wear masks. Um, and, you know, that's the night that Catwoman was captured because she stayed with Bruce Wayne as he died and, and allowed herself to be captured because she wanted to be at his side um, and, and has spent all that time from then until now in prison. And now she's finally out. She's trying to, you know, fulfill Bruce's dying words you know what's this orpheus project so all of that is is fascinating but the thing that really gets me about it is is seeing her interactions with all her old colleagues if you will uh what that does in the fact that they're all older and they have challenges that are sort of age related uh it it's sort of the complete opposite of what happens in the regular comics right where these characters never age they never worry about oh my knee hurts or in the case yeah. of killer croc he can't lift the one ton barbell anymore because his hips are, are bad now. You know, it's like yeah. that sort of stuff makes sense because that's, that's relatable to real life. That's relatable to us. It's, you know, specifically me, I'm saying as I get older and you know, your body aches and you can't do the things you did when you were a kid. So uh, I love that. I, I, it makes it relatable. It makes it fun. Uh, and it adds another aspect and a challenge, another aspect of the story for the reader and another challenge for, these characters to overcome and there's there's very much a little bit of a sort of oceans 11 or heist sort of vibe which you know you often get in catwoman stories but a little bit different because again she's she's got further to go you know it used to be back in the day it, she was a one-man heist crew you know she used to be able to handle it all herself now she can't and so seeing her team up with edward nigma with poison ivy with killer croc it's just it's just a lot of fun the dialogue is really smart there's little nuances little uh, easter eggs here or there referencing back to things that happened in the past that are that are fun um the idea of catwoman with alan scott's green lantern ring love it that's that's a that's a fantastic idea as well so uh yeah I, I, this is this is far and away the best thing i think cliff chang's ever done i mean i don't think he's written a lot of stuff before you know he's mainly known as an artist much like jock um but it, again it's fantastic that we have black label where we have characters or creators like Jock and Cliff Chang, who you know are mostly known for art, can have a chance to tell a story because it's out of continuity, and they don't have to worry about you know contradicting this or that or the other, um, and they can just tell the story they want to tell. So again, th these are the kind of stories that are perfect for Black Label, and yeah, I, I thought this issue was was just I got I enjoyed the first one. This one was this one blew me away. Like yeah, like I said, my favorite book of the week. So. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's move on to Robin's number two, Bean Robin Part Two, from writer Tim Seeley, as we mentioned earlier. 
Baltimore Rivas is the artist. Ramulo Fajardo Jr. does the colors. Steve Wands on letters. Um, I wasn't really a big a big fan of this. Uh, I, like I did enjoy the flashback scenes where basically the files uh, that have been stolen from the Bat computer, where we're we're getting Batman's own sort of take and evaluation on the Robins. I I enjoyed that aspect of it. The rest of it, I, I don't know. Again, it just we have so much Batman. We have so much Batman. Um, I'm still disappointed that this won the round robin. Um, and you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like sour grapes and Tim Silly isn't doing a you know good job. I'm sure he's doing his absolute best. It's just I don't really have any interest in this. It hasn't it hasn't pulled me in yet. It doesn't feel memorable. It doesn't feel to me like I'm gonna remember it by the time I you know, by the time issue three comes around, I'll barely remember what I read in, in issue two. It doesn't seem to be anything special. Um, you know, not that it's bad and, and technically I, this pacing and, and the stru- story structure are very interesting to me. Um, but I'm not really a fan of the art style and it just, it's just kind of an average Robin story, you know, with these bat family members teaming up, we've seen it a hundred times. So there's just so many other concepts that to me were more interesting that, that I wish we would have gotten. So, you know, I, maybe for me, this, this was always going to be kind of have the deck stacked against it just because again, there were so many other interesting concepts that we could have gotten. So this maybe, maybe with it being a Batman um, property, it needed to go a little above and beyond for me to, to make it worth not seeing something else that we hadn't gotten before. So I don't know, but you, you said you, that you enjoyed it, Rocky. What did you think? Well, uh, I didn't mean to imply that I enjoyed it that much. No, I, uh, I just thought it was, uh, I thought it, I, uh, I, I feel a little bit compelled to be, I mean, Tim Seeley, I mean, you know, I listened to him in an interview and he basically said that he hadn't, he's always had an idea for a Robin story and he had this idea for a Robin story for a long time. And he just, and he was asked to pitch it when they were coming up at his for the round Robin and he did and, and he won. And so he told it. And, and he does get the voices rather well. And, and as a compliment to him, you know, it's not, you know, look, I suppose it's not his fault. There's a billion Robins out there really. But I mean, we all know there's Robins out there. So he's, you know, he's doing his best and he's actually putting together a reasonably good story here. And the way that he has all these Robins, when you think about it, he's got a, he's got a multitask here. He's got all these, all these Robins and they're, they all got to deal with Batman and they're, they're going after this murderer and they're, uh, Batman's cutting him off from the cave because there's a Batman problem. He's afraid about uh, some hacking into the cave. And so, you know, they're, you know, all these Robins are, tr- you know, trying to read Batman. You know, there's a great scene where Batman asks Tim to promise him, you know, you're not going to use my computer in the Batcave because he knows that Damien, he knows that Damien's going to lie to him. <laughs> and he knows that Jason Todd's going to lie to him, but he knows that Tim won't. So even Batman knows his Robins. I mean, Nightwing shows up and says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll promise, you know. So, I mean, it, and for those of us who've actually read and have a history with these characters, Tim Seeley, I think, nails it here. I think we he gets the gist of these characters enough that, you know, I want to give him some credit for that. Uh, I was pretty bloody hard on him in the first issue, and it wasn't his fault. Um, I was just so upset, like you said. You know, there's a part of me that I just don't want more, another Robin. But having said that, there's a really good... Uh, what he does here to to great effect is that uh, inters, interspersed throughout this uh, uh, this 22-page issue is... There's the gauntlet. There's gauntlet one, two, three, four, and five, and he shows all the gauntlets that he put Dick Grayson through. And it's a good callback to 
those of us who, especially those of us who like continuity, uh, I actually, uh, I remember, I remember reading the gauntlet with Dick Grayson, that, that, that one graphic novel, the gauntlet, you know, what did you, I couldn't remember the, the plot line, but he does a good job here of saying, what were the formative tests and adventures that they had to pass where Batman concluded that all of the Robins were going to be a Robin, you know, and for Dick Grayson, there was a very specific incident where, you know, he passed. And for Jason Todd, there was a specific incident and he passed. Same for Tim Drake. And of course, what I really like is that he says Stephanie Brown failed. She did fail to become a Robin. She did fail that test. And I'm glad Tim Seeley was honest about that because I don't like Stephanie Brown. I never have like spoiler. <laughs> I thought she was a terrible Robin. But in any event, I like how he did that. And there's a callback there. And so I'm, but what's interesting is that while he's showing the flashbacks of what these gauntlets were for all these Robins, if there was a first Robin, this Robin that I jokingly and I mocked, she's got she's got glorified mascara on and kind of looks ridiculous. But, um, you know, what, what was her gauntlet and what's her story? So you know, I'm kind of curious as to know where this is going to go. We got four issues left. I'm not really that intrigued by this so-called murder mystery here, but I'm I'm uh, I'm. I'm, I'll definitely, I'll be checking this out and uh, uh, I'll be giving Tim Seeley the benefit of the doubt here. This might end up being a better story than I thought maybe it would be. Yeah. I mean, if it's a villain that, you know, hangs around, but you know, the thing about it is it seems like it's a villain that's tied into Robin. She call, she's calling herself Robin talking to birds. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I, 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 I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah. Again, no, 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 no knock against Tim Seeley or, uh, you know, or, or Revis who does the art, just, yeah, wish something else would have won. Uh, all right. On to the last book we're going to talk about in detail. It's Justice League Incarnate issue number two from writers Joshua Williamson and Dennis Culver. Kyle, a lot of artists, so bear with me. Kyle Hotz does the art for pages four through 15. Andrel Brezin does pages one through three and 25 through 28. And Paul Pelletier and Norm Ratman do pages 16 through 24 and 29 through 30. Hi-Fi does the colors and Tom Napolitano does the letters. So yeah, the art definitely uneven, but at least they try to make it make sense. Like Kyle Hotz, who's sort of known for doing sort of supernatural or magic type type art. He does the art when they're in, um, (laughs) they're on 13, which is the magical realm. So they do try to make it work, but Man, I sound like a broken record here. I just don't like it when we have multiple artists with vastly different styles like we do on on this book. But uh, anyway, what did you think of this one, Rocky? Uh, I got to tell you, Joshua Williamson is just throwing tidbits of his imagination in this comic. This is just rife with all kinds of crazy ideas. And he he is channeling his inner Grant Morrison as best he can. Uh, you can, I think he's, I just, uh, and I'm, I'm not building up to a criticism here. I think Joshua Williamson is having fun. I'm having fun reading this. He's, he, I think he's trying to channel his inner Grant Morrison. And there's always a danger. Whenever you tell any writer to, to try to channel your inner Grant Morrison, you got to be very, very careful because you never know what you're going to get. Because sometimes, like, for example, I think sometimes, for example, Scott Snyder, 
his mistake with death metal. Sometimes he would try to outdo Morrison. It's like, you never try to outdo Morrison. Okay. If you want to do Morrison, that's fine. Don't try to outdo him. It just doesn't seem to work. But Joshua Williamson, he's having fun. Dr. Multiverse here is somebody who can see the different, she can look at any hero and see the multiple, all the different iterations of a hero that they might, all the iterations of a hero that exists throughout all the earths in the multiverse. And there's only one Dr. Multiverse, just like there's one Dark Side. Dark Side, uh, in the initial series of Infinite Frontier, uh, he basically captured the Flash, uh, Barry Allen, and uh, with the help with Barry Allen, they basically broke the multiverse. And there's a tear in the fabric of reality that there's this tear that the multiverse is essentially torn, and that the great darkness is leaking through. And so what's happening is that the Justice League Incarnate is essentially trying, they, they end up on Earth 13 here, which is the supernatural Earth where the super demon exists, along with a crazy superpower, John Constantine and, and, and fate and all these other crazy eclectic characters. And I encourage people to go read Multiversity, Grant Morrison's Multiversity, if you want to get a snapshot of Earth 13. But it's, it, it's a... Earth-13 is where Justice League Incarnate is now trying to follow Darkseid because Darkseid is... What's happened is that the great darkness, as it's seeped in through the crack in the fabric of reality, it's what it's done is that it's it's brought together all the other... All the darkest multiversal evil entities in the multiverse are all vying for power. And Darkseid seems to be going everywhere, destroying all this. Last issue, Darkseid took on Tataris and killed him. And in this issue... Darkseid is taking on a, uh, oh my God, what's the guy's name? He's he's taking on, um, uh, yeah, the, what's his, there, there's this villain. I'm trying to get the villain's name here. Uh, is it yeah, Asmodel? He's fight. He fights yeah. Asmodel. Asmodel and the Sheeta Queen. So I mean, again, these are not characters that I'm like I read. I've been reading DC for decades and I I couldn't, I didn't remember Asmodel in the, I remember the Sheeta Queen a little bit, but not a lot. Even Earth 13. I mean, we, we get, we get introduced to this. It's this bar setting uh, of on Earth 13 where all these crazy characters. I mean, the art here was really good. I mean, I got to, I guess, Brezen on the art. Uh, is that who it is? Uh, uh, who's the artist on this issue? Well, there's there's many. Oh, that's <laughs> right. There's a billion yeah. of them, right? Yeah, right. But in any event, it's it, it the the bar scene here re- reminds me of the Oblivion bar in Justice League Dark, but it's even more fascinating than that, and more imaginative than that. It's it's as crazy as a Star Wars Cantana scene. So I got to give some compliments here. I mean, the artist, whichever one it was, they you could tell they had a great time drawing this, and the color work was just fantastic. I mean, there's a lot of fun to be had here. There's even a scene where, I can't believe this, (laughs) President Superman is hit on by Dr. Multiverse. Dr. Multiverse wants President Superman to buy her a drink. And Thomas Wayne, of all people, is telling President Superman to take a load off and, you know, don't be afraid to get laid once in a while is basically what he tells President Superman. (laughs) I mean, it's like, you know, you got to take a break once in a while. This coming from Thomas Wayne. There's actually... It's my favorite scene where Dr. Multiverse asks President uh, Superman if she'd buy him a drink and he declines. And uh, Thomas Wayne says, Calvin, Calvin, Calvin. (laughs) I'm just saying, all work and no play. I mean, anyways, Williamson is having fun here with the dialogue of these characters. He's trying to establish some rapport with them. 
Um, whether or not it's going to work, I'm not sure, but it it works for for me. I'm having fun here. It's clear that they're 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 going to be pushed all around the multiverse trying to stop Darkseid, and they end up uh, at at near the end of this uh, in another realm again, trying to stop trying to stop Darkseid. Meanwhile. On the House of Heroes, it's being attacked by the Parademons uh, of with Grail and Darkseid's forces because they want to take what they want to do is that they want to take the the satellite of the House of Heroes and use it as a battering ram to slam into the uh, the the bleed and to basically I'm not really sure to basically cut it off or I don't really not 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 really sure Orion is always kind of a battering ram Orion who is the son of Darkseid, always has, his battle tactics always involve far more aggression than strategy. And so uh, even Aqua Woman, who is also from, uh, who is from Earth-11, she kind of questions his tactics. Then out of the blue, I mean, we get Darkseid battling Asmodel in this great epic scene. Meanwhile, back at the House of Heroes, we got the Batwoman who laughs shows up. I mean... That was the one cringeworthy moment. I didn't want to see a Batwoman who laughs, but she's from Earth 11, which is from the same Earth as Aqua Woman, who is a member of Justice League Incarnate. <laughs> and strangely enough, I actually find Batwoman is slightly more tolerable than I found the Batman who laughs. So at least there's that. But wow. Um, so, uh, so much happens. Like, so much action. There's there's scenes between Captain Carrot and and Avery, the the, the young uh, the young up and coming Flash, who's who Barry Allen recommended to President Superman that she's going to be his, his good replacement. And and uh, again, at, at the end, to to try to resolve everything and to uh, essentially win the day, Doctor Multiverse utilizes her powers, and and unfortunately she. Instead of instead of having it the effect that she does, she accidentally sends the Batman Batwoman who laughs to the House of Heroes satellite, which has a negative impact on the House of Heroes. So the, the self destruct sequence is initiated, which destroys the House of Heroes satellite, and sends sends everyone in in the Justice League incarnate to different parts of the multiverse, where essentially uh, they wake up and they, none of them have their powers. And they're they're lost, I think, in in the multiverse. And uh, if there's clearly this is, it's almost like one of those. Sometimes one of my pet peeves is where you go on a uh, like a fishing expedition or like a treasure hunt. Some plot lines in comic books are, you know, you're always on a treasure hunt. You got to find this piece, and then you got to go here, and you got to go there. We already saw this in the pages of Wonder Woman to a certain extent. Well, Wonder Woman for ten issues, she goes from world to world to world to realm to realm to realm before she finally gets back to Earth. It's sort of a way to decompress the story before you finally get to the main plot line. Uh, Joshua Williamson is doing a little bit of that here, but I will say that we're having at least we're having some fun along the way, and uh, I'm I'm enjoying it. I'm not really sure to what extent it's really moving the substance of the plot. How is this going to help us defeat Darkseid? This feels a little bit. There's, you know, it's plotting a little bit, but then. It's so crazy and it's so fun that, and I'm getting a sense that Joshua Williamson is having fun too, that I'm kind of enjoying it myself. So, but I got to tell you, I don't know if this is necessarily going to be for everybody. 
I think for people that aren't familiar with the DC universe, this really might be something that loses some people that for someone like me, I love it because I'm a huge fan of DC of Morrison's multiversity, but I, I would really be curious to know your thoughts and uh, especially other people, unlike us who maybe aren't as familiar with the DC universe. What do they think when they read this? Yeah. So I ne I've never read multiversity because you know, I'm not a Morrison fan. That being said, obviously I have pretty vast knowledge of the DC universe. So I can, I can definitely follow along here. Um, and I agree with you. It's a lot of fun seeing a, a, a Superman version of the demon. Fantastic. I also agree with you that I could have gone the rest of my days without a Batwoman who laughs <laughs> and been perfectly fine. I can't stand that character. I think it's a terrible character. And now we're getting a female iteration, ho ho just horrible, unnecessary. Didn't, didn't like that at all. That being said, yeah, in terms of the story, uh, Josh Williamson is having a lot of fun, like you said. And and what's going on does seem big and epic. Um, this isn't the cleanest event. You know, it it used to be, and I've talked about this before. We certainly saw it in those generation one shots that were supposed to be, you know, generation zero through five, written by Dan Jurgens and and Robert Venditti and a host of other art uh, creators, uh, writers, and artists. And it was so tight and it was so clean and it was so easy to under, even though it was, you know, a lot of different time travel and commandy and whatnot, it was easy to understand. It was well-constructed. Williamson is much more in the Scott Snyder school of doing an event where you just throw everything in the mixing pot and have a lot of fun and throw all these Easter eggs in and, you know, don't worry about it stuff quite making sense. If, it, if, you know, you're having a bunch of fun, I sort of prefer the, former rather than the latter i prefer you know a cleaner event that makes a lot of sense i mean christ on infinite earths to me is still the, the gold standard and we're talking about an infinite number of earths and so 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 many characters drawn drawn by george perez back in the day but when you read that it still makes sense like it is a a, a plot that you can very easily follow you know this is not that uh, it's it's much harder to follow. There's a lot more chaos and whatnot, and so, you know, it, it, it's not a it's not a criticism. It's just a difference in style that Williamson's choosing to just kind of throw everything but the kitchen sink in here, mm -hmm. and it works. It's fun. Um, but like Rocky said, what the kind of as an unintended consequence of that, it would be hard to follow for somebody who who's not a DC fan, as opposed to Christ on Infinite Earth with all those characters. You would think. Well, that's not something you'd ever give somebody to to read who's not a DC fan. But I would I have given Christ on Infinite Earths to people who have read no DC. I'm like, you want to know what DC Comics is? Read this, and there's going to be points where you're confused and you might not know who certain characters are. But just keep going, just keep going. And by the end, they're like, oh, it's a gateway, right? I can go Wikipedia and look up this character. I can go Wikipedia and look up that character and get some some context. It's easier to do that, I think, with Christ on Infinite Earth as opposed to this. Um, but again, it's just, it's, it's not a criticism. It's just a difference in style because this is fun. And this does harken back to what I was saying earlier with, I expect there to be a lot of changes in the DC universe in 2022. There's, uh, you know, a lot of stuff coming. That's going to be a bit of a shakeup. What I'm curious about is if it'll reduce their output at all. Cause I feel like one of the things that Dan Didio did and, and they did it even more, if you remember, when Didio left, when Jim Lee said, we're going to reduce the whole line by 10%. They were cutting those titles that weren't selling. You know, they're cutting the, the bottom 10% or whatever. Hmm. Now, 
I mean, I can't imagine that some of the, the bottom 10% now, I mean, we don't get me wrong. Rocky and I love DC comics. Obviously it's why we do this DC spotlight every work, but there every week, but there are books that don't deserve to be on the stands. I'm sorry. They just don't, I won't name any of them, <laughs> but you can go back and listen to our spotlight and, <laughs> yeah. and pick up on what some of them are. Like they're, they're just not good. They're just not good. So I wouldn't mind if DC did reduce the output because I, I, the, the pendulum swung too far coming out of future state. You know, we had like six, eight titles. People were like, where's the books? Where's the Aquaman title? Where's the Green Lantern title? Now it's like, now it's like 18 books a week. That's too many. That's too many. I think the sweet spot is right around 10 books a week, uh, plus specials and whatnot. So, you know, maybe 40, between 40 and 50 books a month, I think is where it should be at. And it's, it's more than that right now. So I guess we'll have to, to wait and see. Uh, in terms of other books that we didn't get a chance to talk about or, or that we're not specifically reading. So uh, Legend of the Dark Knight number eight is out. That's a, a collection of the Legends of the Dark Knight digital first series. That's also out on stands today. Uh, over on the horror line, Refrigerator Full of Heads number three is out. Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? number 113. And then for uh, collected editions, we have Green Lantern volume one Invictus trade paperback. That's the one by Jeffrey Thorne. I don't know that I can in good conscience recommend that, uh, but it's out there if you're a, a Green Lantern fan or, you, or if you're a John Stewart fan, then I do recommend it because uh, John Stewart definitely gets uh, first billing in that uh, in that Green Lantern title from Jeffrey Thorne. So uh, that's going to do it. Anything to add, Rocky? Uh, I don't know that you gave your standout. You said uh, that there were a couple. Well, that the one that uh, the one I enjoyed the most, only because I've uh, I've been looking for some a different approach to to wonder woman and i i do find i am finding nubia to be refreshing and so i enjoyed nubia in the amazons i it surprised me and uh uh yeah and yeah definitely a, a close second would be catwoman lonely city uh and yeah i'll leave it at that and again top four would be nubia followed by catwoman lonely city followed by justice league incarnate followed by um I would I would have to go with uh yeah Nightwing. Yeah, I think Nightwing is going to be at the top of a lot of people's list for book of the week. Um again, like absolutely fantastic art, definitely shows Bruno Redondo's skill. I have no complaints about it. But for me, Lonely City is is definitely where it's at. So, yeah. Uh just a reminder everybody, be sure you're checking out our 12 days of Spawn Miss as Rocky and I cover the first 12 issues of Spawn as we count down to Christmas. Uh, also, don't forget, if you're listening to us audio only, head over to YouTube, do a search for Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. The Comic Boom channel is Rocky's home uh, on YouTube, so be sure you subscribe to the channel, ring that notification bell, like this video. Uh, all of that really helps with our uh, reach and uh, ability to generate content for you. Uh, conversely, if you're checking us out on YouTube and you haven't yet done so, please go to your favorite podcasting app or platform, Google, Stitcher, iTunes, uh, Spotify, whatever it might be, and uh, do a search for the comic source and subscribe there as well so you don't miss out on any of our other episodes. So uh, that's going to do it for this episode. Uh, as always, everybody, we appreciate your support, and we'll talk to you next time. See you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. 
you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.